Big and the slithy toes did gyre and gimble. There we go. Acts chapter 6. If you'd like to turn to Acts chapter 6, that'll be fabulous. Who's had breakfast this morning? Some haven't. Really? It's usually a teen thing. Our daughter's a nightmare. She won't eat breakfast. It's one of our battles. Bless her. Who likes food? Yeah. Pretty good. Most hands have gone up. Not all hands. No, two hands. <laughs> I get it, I like that. Who needs food? Obviously, all of us. We need food to survive. We need food to grow. We need it as fuel for our own energy. We need the building blocks that it provides for healing and so on and growth. We need, we need, it. We need food for sustenance. Um, it's a daily necessary requirement, isn't it, for all of us to stay alive, let alone thrive. And today we're going to continue through the book of Acts, as you've been working through um, since July, I think it was. Um, we've reached now chapter 6, and here there's a story we're going to read in a moment where the leaders of the church, they're presented with an issue regarding the serving of dinner, but very quickly they recognise there is an issue at stake here regarding the serving of doctrine. So two different types of of feeding. So without further ado, Jenny is going to come and, don't look surprised, Jenny is going to come and read the first seven verses from Acts for us. And then we'll see what God has to say on the back of it. Acts 6, 1 to 7. Thank you, babe. I'm getting to that age where I have to lift my glasses up soon. Uh, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this, to this duty." But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what, it, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicola, Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Mm. Thank you, darling. Dear Lord, as we dig deeper into this text, will you truly feed us? Will we not leave this room unchanged? Will you speak to us in a way that is for our growth, for our sustenance, for our healing, for us to thrive as well as survive, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, like I said just now, this chapter is about the leaders of the church being presented with an issue about serving of dinner, but realise very quickly there's an important issue at stake about the serving of doctrine. What we have here is a food episode, isn't it, in the story of the early church, ensuring everybody gets the right food. And um, what we have here immediately is the signs of a growing church. 
the logistical issues, the practical issues, as well as the spiritual ones, ensuring that, as it's what we have here at Beacon in many ways, as we're growing, we've got more logistical issues to cater to and more people to consider and practical rotors and teams and who's looking after who. There's the practical, but very quickly, if we're not careful, that can swamp the spiritual. We can lose sight of actually what we're here for. And the apostles immediately are like, there's something else at stake here that we need to be very careful of. They want to make sure that people are cared for, but both physically and spiritually. What's happening, just to explain, the widows here, the Greek-speaking, they talk about Hellenists. The Hellenists were saying our widows aren't being looked after. The Hellenists are the Greek speakers. You've got Hebrew speakers in Jerusalem. You've also got Greek speakers as well. And amongst those believers, the Greek-speaking widows, they're being overlooked in the distribution of food. Now, on recent Sundays, you'll have heard about earlier in the book of Acts, many of the disciples, many of the members of the church were selling their houses and their lands. you remember that story from a few weeks ago? They're selling their land, selling property, and bringing the money to the apostles' feet to be distributed amongst those who are in need. What they're doing, they're creating a common fund to make sure that no one misses out. And that's what, is what today's story is directly linked to because these widows would normally have received what was called a dole from the Jewish temple. It's the same as we use the word. We talk about dole. We talk about security and social welfare and benefits. We use that word dole sometimes. We're used to it. It's kind of gone out of the vernacular a little bit. But you, you understand it's the same thing. The Jewish temple would have a dole to give to those in need in the city. Because of their faith, because of their conversion to this extreme Christianity, suddenly they're excluded. They're not eligible for this dole, and they don't have what they need to survive. So suddenly, they are totally dependent on the church community. They're in desperate need, and unless the church community steps up, they will go without. So this today, this complaint is actually a direct result about that common fund, about buying food with it to give to widows. Some widows were not on the receiving end of that, and they needed it. So unfortunately, whether it's deliberate, you know, was this a cultural or... Ethnic issue at stake here, we, we don't know. Yes, there's Greek speakers saying our Greek-speaking widows are being ignored by the Hebrew speakers. Maybe there was something there we don't know. But maybe it was just ignorantly. Maybe that's just the way it happened to work out. Either way, these particular widows are going without. Now, the apostles, the twelve, the leaders of the church, they could have gone, well, I appreciate it's an issue, but it's not our problem. It's a bit beneath our station. That could have been one extreme of their reaction. Another extreme could have been, oh my goodness, I had no idea. Um, yeah, we're a bit busy, but do you know what? We'll drop everything. We'll go to Tesco's. We'll buy the stuff. We'll come back. We'll man the kitchen. We'll do it all. We'll make them a lovely dinner. We'll do it. That would be the other extreme reaction. One where they'll do it all themselves, or they have nothing to do with it. But they have a very nuanced position down the middle that is more helpful. Because either of those would have caused other problems, as I'm sure you can work out for yourself. Instead, the leaders of the church, they empathised totally with what the issue was and were grateful that they'd even it'd been brought to their awareness. It wasn't even on their radar because the church is there's so much going on. It easily happens. It's life, isn't it? But they didn't just respond to the matter at hand. They saw a deeper need. And they ensured that the solution was one which would provide greater benefit to the church community than what seemed to be the only immediate problem. If they just used their physical eyes, these Greek-speaking widows would not have gone physically hungry, but the church as a whole would have spiritually weakened. Just because of a simple, genuine, practical issue, which was, was, would have been a good thing 
to, yes, we can roll our sleeves up, we'll make sure this gets done, but actually there'll be a greater problem further down the line. It'd just been a splinter and a thin end of the wedge of something even worse because this church would have spiritually weakened. And so with that in mind, I just want to speak into three areas of what this text tells us today. It's going to be a little bit different to a usual sermon in some ways, but then next week you'll find out next week's sermon is going to be a little bit different again, all right, if you're up for that. I might use a whiteboard next week. Ooh, proper exciting. Um, the three aspects I want to talk about today are feeding expectations, I'll explain in a minute, feeding expectations, feeding the needs and feeding on the word. What I mean by that, feeding expectations, there were expectations on these men who were set apart, who were chosen to do this task. Certain expectations on them that I don't want to miss and is a helpful lesson for us here at Beacon Church and actually a bit of uh, communications about what's happening behind the scenes to bring you in the loop and what's going on with that in mind. Uh, then I want to look at the stories beating heart, the needs of the widows. I just want to address just briefly about, just talk about how we can cater to the needs within the church. There's just something we can all do to help with that. And then finally, to end up on what's truly at stake here about the word, feeding on the word undergirds everything else. And when that goes awry, ultimately everything else goes awry. So I want to finish on that um, before we come to worship through song on the back of it. So first of all, feeding expectations. What do I mean? Well, there is an interesting thread to this story that isn't immediately obvious unless you go um, dig in and appreciate a little bit more what happens to the church afterwards, which I'll explain. Because there's this explicit need brought to the twelve's attention, but instead of just finding out who's available to the job, they even say, this isn't just for anyone. It's like, who's available? Here's a rotor, here's a clipboard, stick your names down. They were very aware that even though it seems to be, and I put in quotes, just serving food to some widows, they realise this is not just for anyone. Verse 3, how do they describe the people they're looking for? Verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. That's quite a high bar for someone to serve some food, isn't it? You'd have thought. Why have they done that? Well, the twelve knew that they were the ones who were called to preach the word, which not everybody can do. They knew they were the ones who were called to do that, feeding living bread to the church. But they also knew that if anyone was to be involved in ensuring that the widows didn't go hungry, they too needed to be wise and spirit-filled and for that to be observed by others, to have a good reputation amongst others, to recognise that in them. And so if we fully appreciate what's happening here, the 12 apostles, they're actually treating the widows being fed physical food as just a weighty thing as the wider community being fed spiritual food. Because... Serving in the church is a responsibility. Serving the church is a privilege in whatever capacity you serve in. And so as much as being able is important, you want the people who are the best for the job to do a job well, don't you? We all want that. But as much as being able and being available, sometimes you have people who are available, but they may not be skilled in the area. Sometimes you have people who are truly gifted, but they're just not around. They're busy doing other stuff. We want people to be able and available. But if we just leave it at that, we're going to go wrong. Because our utmost priority needs to be about character. Character is always the priority. Why? Because we're talking about God's people here. 
We can't just do things flippantly. Character is always so important because when it comes to God's church, it's, it's that God's church, Jesus' beautiful bride that he's making more and more beautiful to bring him glory, to celebrate him and to point to him. That's not something to be cared for by folk who are more interested in themselves. It's as simple as that, isn't it? People who are after selfish gain, who are after seeking a platform, who are not open to criticism. The heart of how people serve affects the church for better or for worse, regardless of that position. How you serve drinks, how you serve refreshments makes a big difference to church community, to relationships, to family, to new visitors. It has a massive spiritual effect more than just handing over a cup of coffee. Do you see what I mean? I'm not, I'm not over-egging that. There is a truth, there is a spiritual element to that in how we teach our children, how we raise them in, in uh, trailblazers and how we lead them in Cornerstone and how we teach the word from the front, how we conduct ourselves behind the scenes, how we put the chairs out. Do we do it with a cheerful spirit or do we do it begrudging? There's a character issue that affects the church in more ways than quite often we see. So here's the lesson. Because it goes beyond that. It's not just about people being of character. It's about keeping each other accountable to that. Because there's a little lesson here that you may not necessarily be aware of. Because you think these men were sorted. These seven men were all men of character, yeah? That's what it says. So they are, yeah? So we're sorted for the future, are we? Not necessarily tick that box. Because that doesn't mean we don't have safeguards in place to say, ensure we, our character remains in a good place that brings praise to Jesus and doesn't damage the church. People can change. People can go off track. You see in this list here, the list of men, where are we? Verse 5, they talk about Stephen. We'll talk about him a bit more next week. Brilliant name. Uh, there's Philip. There's Prochorus. There's Nicanor. There's Timon. That's not the meerkat from Lion King. It's another one. Uh, Parmenas. And then this guy at the end, Nicolaus. Later on, this guy's beliefs, and particularly his followers, evolved into an abysmal attitude to food and to sex. Literally, when it comes to food and sex, anything goes. That's the kind of believers he and his followers became. And we see them in uh, Revelation chapter 2. There's two out of the number of letters to the church when Jesus speaks to his church some pretty fierce words. Two of those letters mention the Nicolaitans, are the followers of Nicolaus, and he says, I hate their works. I hate their works. Because they got to a point where the physical doesn't matter, it's all about the spiritual, so actually physically you can do what you want. Do what you want with food, do what you want with sex. They were giving away their wives to each other. It's horrible stuff. That's this guy. That's this guy. Somehow, without appropriate openness to others speaking biblical truth into his life, he went completely off the rails. A guy who started seemingly in a good place. So none of us are immune to it, are we? (laughs) None of us are immune to it. For church to thrive, we need to be open to others speaking into our lives. We need to be okay with constructive criticism We need to deliver it out of love, but we need to know, therefore, it's being delivered out of love, and we need to listen to it. Because otherwise, we can easily, when we're caught in our own little world of what we think is right, we can go horribly wrong. For church to thrive, our expectations need to be about watching out for one another and letting others in. Not just thinking, oh, they need fixing and they need fixing. (laughs) Planking your eye. We need to invite others in and allow them to speak into our lives 
as well. And so with that in mind, hot off the press, a bit of news for you. Uh, we as elders, we speak to each other, we keep each other accountable, we're able to address each other when we have concerns about each other. As an eldership, but that's not just within us, we trust we are transparent and open for you to come up to us and say, I've got concerns, I've got issues. We want to continue to be the leaders who invite that in, and I'm doing it again. If you have any concerns about our conduct, our character, concerns about how we lead the church, concerns about how we talk to our wives, etc., 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 please, open invite, feel free to come and speak to us, or come and speak to one of the others if you can't speak to us directly, and <laughs> they will walk through dealing with us. Does that make sense? But there's a bit more to that. We as a church want to remain accountable as well. Now, we're part of a wider church, uh, a wider family of churches called Relational Mission. Uh, and we are accountable to Mike Betts, who is our, our apostle. He, look, he fathers us as a family of churches, but he's just one guy. And so we saw we had Steph Liston come down on Wednesday to help us commission Bob into eldership. He's part of the apostolic team. There's another guy, Morris, who's responsible for the European mainland. But even then, there's three guys. How can they look after 70, 80 churches and church plants? They, they can't do that well. They're, they're not superhuman. They're men. And so they have appointed, over the summer, seven men, strangely enough, who uh, are men of character, who are able to look after clusters of churches, communities as they're called, communities of churches, on behalf of Mike and Steph and Morris, to ensure that we're supported, we're equipped, we're looked after, we're in the loop, we're relating together, and we are accountable, fully accountable. And so we as a team have prayed about it, we've talked about it at length, and we have tucked in uh, with Martin Segal at, at City Church Cambridge, who many of you will know he was here. What did I say? Cambridge. That's Dan Goodman. Sorry. Uh, I'll wake up at lunchtime. It's all right. City Church, Canterbury, um, who many of you will know he was here on Wednesday night. Um, brilliant bloke. Love him. He's dear, dear brother. He, he puts me in my place sometimes. It's brilliant. I love it. It's what I need. He's younger than me and he sorts me out. I, we need that. Um, but it's handy because it's geographical. He's just down the road. But it wasn't just for that reason. It's for many other reasons. And the community of other people who are tucking in with him, there are people we already know, we relate with well, we can serve each other well with Ramsgate and so on and so forth. Others, others are still thinking, considering where, they, where they're going to tuck into. Uh, we, I've, I've, I had a long lunch with Martin on Friday and we are now formally, we have invited his accountability to us or vice versa, in. We have asked him to look after us as a church, to look after us as a team. It will be a brilliant thing for us. And so he now has the open invite to not just keep in touch with us, keep us talking to other church leaders, etc., etc. He now has free reign. If he sees something awry in us as an eldership team, to step in and deal with it. But it goes the other way as well for you guys. If, like I was saying earlier, you see concerns in the eldership team and all four of us are going off track and we are closing ranks, God willing, we don't do this. But I know I'm a human and I want to be accountable. If we as a foursome are closing ranks and not letting you in and you see massive concerns, you can go straight to Martin. Please know that. You can go to Martin Segal and he will step in and deal with it with the apostolic team on his side as well. We need that as a church, don't we? Do we want to stay pure and holy for Jesus or do we just want to be happy doing our own thing regardless of where it takes us? Of course we don't. And so we have these accountability measures in place. No, you can approach us and if you can't do that, you can go to Martin now. Okay? Okay. Yeah. Yes, good. Just checking. Just checking. Martin Segal. 
Martin leads the team at City Church Cambridge. You'll definitely know his face. I've done it again, haven't I? City Church, Canterbury. I'll show you his face on Facebook later on. You'll know exactly who I'm talking about. Martin Segal, S-E-G-A-L. You're after his email address and phone number already, aren't you? It's like I've, got, I've got stuff to talk to him about. Brilliant. For the sake of Jesus being honoured in all things, we need to seek character before gifting in all things as a number one factor, whether we're serving up doctrine or whether we're serving up donuts. But let's continue to invite each other to hold each other to account as well. Yeah? Are you up for that? It's a really, really important thing. Don't think it's all right being a Lone Ranger or even giving lip service and making out you're not, but secretly you are. It's really, really important. So that's the first one, feeding expectations. Uh, the next one, feeding the needs. I just want to speak briefly into this just to raise awareness and ask some questions. There were needs in that church. People were being forgotten. And there are needs in Beacon. There are needs amongst us, aren't there? Um, but we can sometimes only be aware of what's going on immediately in our little bubbles within Beacon. Yeah? We can still be in danger of that. What we see here is physical care across the generations. It's cross-generational care here. And I'm not sure we see enough of what that could be here in Beacon. I'm not saying we're doing it badly. I think we are good at that. But I think we can do even more. I think we can see more of what that could be here at Beacon. Here's a question. Do you know what's going on amongst the people older than you? Now, Fred's squinting because he can't think of anyone who's older than him. <laughs> so I've got a question for you, Fred, and everyone else. Do you know what's going on amongst the people who are younger than you? We, we relate to people like us. That's, a, that's okay. But it needs to be not at the exclusion of needs in the church that we could, that we could cater to, that we could help out with, but we're not aware of it because we're caught up in our own little bubble. We can do that, can't we? Are you aware of what's happening amongst the people who are older than you? Are you aware of what's happening amongst the people who are younger than you? Do you even know well the people who are older or younger than you? It's hard breaking the ice sometimes, I know. We can help you with that. We can introduce you. Do you know people who aren't in your age bracket as well as the people in your own age bracket? Do you know that? If we're meant to be family... It's a big question, isn't it? Parents of young children, do you know the needs of the people who, don't, who aren't in the same season as you? And vice versa, if you don't have young children, do you know what's going on amongst the parents of young children? Do you know them well enough to ask, to find out? There is always a temptation to hang out with people like ourselves. We all have a tendency to do that. I get it. But is that how Jesus, who died for every tribe and tongue and race and age, is that how we'd want us to operate as a family? His church is a multicoloured, vibrantly diverse people united in him. And we need to show the world how that can work to its most beautiful potential. Don't we? Yeah. I think we've just still got some stuff to learn here. A question to ask yourself. Am I helping Beacon Church show the world we are not tribal? I'm not just talking about Beacon Tribe. I'm talking about tribes within Beacon. We can do that, can't we? Here we've got the Greek speakers and the Hebrew speakers. We've got the old and the young. Suddenly they're learning. There's an issue here. We need to work together. So let's just value the true meaning of what it means to be family. About grandparents and cousins and kids and that weird uncle. That's family, isn't it? You're probably asking, am I that weird uncle? I don't know. 
But after, <laughs> thank you. Am I playing my part in that? Am I playing my part in what it means to be family across the generations? Jesus said, love one another, then the world will know that you're my disciples. Not love the ones you like most, just love one another. It's the value of small groups. It's about valuing those in a different generation to you, about seeking to listen to them, asking them questions, get to know each other. We are planning, I'm just trying to sort out some dates with um, Heidi, the manager here. We're trying to plan some, some bookings just for bring your own lunches, just times when we'll stay behind, you bring up at lunch, we're just going to hang out together. Mix it up. Don't just hang out with the people you'd normally just sit with. Mix it up. Let's be family together. Let's make the most of this kind of thing. And one more request. Uh, ben Goodman, many of you might remember from a few years past. He's been here a few times. He's a prophet from the east coast of the USA. Tremendous guy, a man of character who God clearly speaks through. The stuff he's been saying about us as a church has happened. Uh, and here's one more that you might not be aware of. It's one we chew over behind the scenes. He said to me, he said, you're going to end up effectively pastoring two churches. There's going to come a point in the next few years. This was about three or four years ago. In the next few years, you're going to end up pastoring an old church and a young church in different ways that they need to be pastored because of who they are, but pastoring them both differently in such a way that they work together as one church. That's what we're seeing here. More young people are coming our way. And we've got across the generations now where we can learn how to work together. So as much as that's for us as an eldership to work out how to pastor you guys well, how to shepherd you well, to work together as one church, just asking humbly, could you help us out with that? I think we can all play a part in that, can't we? I think it's quite an exciting thing. There are many churches where they're very, very cliquey. We don't want to be that church, do we? So let's, no, amen. So let's do what we can to avoid it. Brilliant. Third one. Third point to finish on. Feeding on the word. There's an interesting flavour of what the apostles say here that can come across wrong. Because it looks like they're being a bit precious. You see what they're saying? Verse 2. Verse 2. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That's how it sounds, doesn't it? That's not what they're saying at all. Just need to change the nuance. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That's all they're saying. Because there are some leaders... I've seen them. There are some leaders who will not stoop to picking up a dishcloth or putting out the chairs. It comes back to character again. I suggest that leaders need to be the people who are more than happy to, more than willing to. It's just that leaders aren't superhuman. Only Jesus is. And the church would benefit most when leaders, when elders, are able to focus on the spiritual oversight and prayer and feeding of the flock um, and then to get their, roll their sleeves up when they can but not because they have to. Because it would be at your detriment if we, who do the feeding of the, of the word, if we're limited in our time to prepare that, to pray into it, to pray for you guys, to serve that well. We want to serve those dishes well, effectively. And if we're scurrying around because we're having to plug all the gaps, then maybe there's something you can help out with. And so the 12 here, it's less about being precious. This is more about priorities. They were simply remembering Jesus' words. From Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, he says to the disciples, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's such a vital thing to feed the flock with spiritual living bread. I'm sure, I'm sure Peter himself, one of, this, one of the twelve, he still had Jesus' words 
echoing around his head. You see him in John chapter 21, verse 17. He says, Peter, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And so as shepherds of the flock, shepherds of the church, these guys, they needed to ensure they were feeding the sheep. They were feeding them spiritual food as well as physical food. This is absolutely essential. Because this spiritual food is such an absolutely vital thing that we cannot do without and quite often we can be in danger of neglecting. But we mustn't. Why? How can we know what is false, what is bad spiritual food for us unless we know what is good for starters? You eat something rotten, you eat something mouldy, you know straight away, don't you? Because you're used to good food. The sad story of Nicolaus and his followers proves this, that they lost sight of what is true. And they hungered for something else. So how can we know what is unhealthy food? There's so much around us, values in the media and, and so on. There's stuff in the world that looks shiny, looks blingy, looks lovely. But underlying it, we need to be able to sniff out where it's mouldy. We need to be okay with that. But how do we do that? How can we be quick enough to go, there's something not right here? How can we do that? We do that by feeding, what's, feeding on what's best. Feeding what is true. You see, banks, when they train their staff to spot counterfeit money, they don't sit them down with counterfeit money and show them some of the clues of where that might have gone wrong. They don't. What they do, they ensure with their trainees, they ensure that hour after hour, day after day, they just handle authentic currency over and over and over and over again until they are so familiar with the truth they cannot be possibly be fooled by the false. They can sniff it a mile away because they know what is true so intimately. It's the same for us in the Word of God. How can we know what is false? How can we navigate life when we know what is true? How do we know the Bible is true? That's a good question, Steve. I can tell you right now that this is the Bible, 66 books of the Bible written by 40 human, different human authors across a 1,500-year span in three different languages over three different continents. Those 66 books make a perfect jigsaw that are the revelation of God. It is evidentially, historically, experientially, philosophically robust. Now, I would happily give, amen, I would happily give you evidence now we just don't have time, but... If you want to do it over a coffee, over a beer, I'll happily do that. But 24th of November is the first of a short mini-series. We're doing three Sundays on um, Is the Bible True? is the first one. And then the first two Sundays of December, uh, Mick will be doing Does, Does Science Disprove God? And the Sunday after that, just before our Christmas carol services, um, if there's a God of love, why is there so much suffering? We're going to answer these big questions. Great ones for you to invite your friends to. The kind of questions you hear and you don't know how to answer, bring them along. Bring as many people along as possible. We're going to try and even try and sort out some invites to, to give to people. So on the 24th of November, I will be speaking on, at length, is the Bible true? So there'll be lots of space for that. But right now, I can tell you, it is. <laughs> the more you feast on it, it's not even just, it's true. The more you feast on it, the more it proves itself. Yeah? Many people here I know can put their hands up to that because this is more than simply good truth or the best of the bunch. This is alive. This is God's living word. 
and it transforms and changes lives. God's word is living and active and you'll see that for yourself the more you feast on it and digest it and see its work in you and around you. This is the true soul food your heart has been longing for. It's in here. Just an example, I mean, I just want to re-explain what I said last week. I was talking about, I mean, I read widely. I read lots of things. And I love um, discovering what other people believe. I read their their texts. I've read the Quran. I think it's really interesting to read and to know what other people believe. But you should always keep biblical spectacles on at all times. So last week I was talking about there was a command in the Quran about God being God willing. And I realized actually me as a Christian, I don't even do that enough. I'm just like, oh, next Thursday I'm going to go and see my friends. Uh, am I? Am I going to be here tomorrow morning? I don't know. Am I going to wake up tomorrow? I don't know. I make assumptions. So it's actually been a good lesson for me to actually reconfigure that and understand biblically. James chapter 4 tells me that actually I shouldn't just go flippantly, I'm going to do this, I'm going to go on a holiday next year. It should always be if it's in the will of God. I need to consciously keep that the forethought of my mind. So I, please don't misunderstand what I was saying last week. That the, there, are, there is some holy truth in the Quran. No, it's false. But there are glimpses somewhere that can lead us to the truth. You can sniff it out. There's, there's something in there, but there's also something not quite right about it. We come to where, what is true, come to the living word, and we see what God says, and he leads us deeper to his heart. And so, God's word, the Bible, is essential to our growth. The apostles knew it, which is why they were gunning for it. If you're not growing, and don't assume you are, Ask someone wise who knows you and ask them to be honest. Jenny asked me, am I growing? It's a good question. So we work it out together. But if you're not growing, or if you discover you're not, if you know you're not, you need to ask how much you're feeding on the word of God in the first place. Not just reading it. I've done that today. Digesting it. Ruminating on it. Chewing on it. Digesting it well. Seeking others' teaching on it. If we as a church aren't growing, it's a corporate thing as well, if we as a church aren't growing, not just in numbers but in depth, then we need to ask how central God's word is to our community as well as socialising and singing nice songs. We're even careful with the songs we choose. We, we watch out for the songs we choose because they teach theology, don't they? None of you are going to go home reciting sentences from my sermon, I suspect, today. But you might go home singing some of our songs. So we need to ensure that the words you're singing are true to God's living word. We're careful with the resources that we use in kids' work and youth work and so on because it's feeding them the word of God. It's not, oh, it's the kids' work, this is the proper stuff. No, it's just as important. We're teaching them the word of God. So we want to make sure we are. We want to make sure we're teaching them the truth. So as they grow up, they can sniff out what's mouldy. Amen? That's our heart for them. That's what we want to do. So as we finish, let's just look at the last verse of that passage. Verse 7. What's the end result that's recorded here? It wasn't, and the widows weren't hungry anymore. (laughs) I'm sure they weren't. But there's more to it. Verse 7, as a result of this, and the word of God continued to increase because it's being preached and it's taking effect. It's a living word that has action and transformation. The word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of God continued to increase. The church multiplied and even devout priests who were familiar enough with the Old Testament, they'd read it, they hadn't fully digested it, 
Because when they did, they realised Jesus was the promised Messiah. They came to faith as well. It's all about keeping the main thing the main thing. Was also dealing with the physical needs of a growing of a growing church. And as we do that, keeping the main thing the main thing, that ensures the transformation, the miracles, the salvations that we dream of, they will naturally happen because we're being God's people true to his living word. It's not rocket science. We don't have to muster anything up. He does the hard work. And so feeding on physical food ensures our physical health, but it won't benefit you spiritually. But feeding on the word of God leads to greater spiritual well-being and as a result, that ensures that our physical well-being will occur as well. Because when we're a truly gospel-centered community, we'll naturally be ensuring that no one misses out. We'll naturally be ministering across the generations. We'll naturally be holding one another accountable because we're feasting on his truth. So my question would be, are you being fed on his word? Are you feeding on his word? Are you feeding others? Are you passing it on? Are you teaching others? Are you looking after each other? Are you looking out for physical needs? Where can I help? Where can I care? How can we do this together? But it starts with feasting on his truth and his truth feeds it further. Don't despise the seemingly mundane habit of daily feeding on God's living word. Sometimes you can read it and it's like, I don't don't know, Holy Spirit help me. I'm not sure I'm getting anything today. But you'll be surprised. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. He speaks through it. It always pays off. So this passage is it's a helpful provocation for us at Beacon. And so we will glorify Jesus by inviting one another to hold us to account. Let's keep doing that. Keep saying to each other, please keep me on the straight and narrow. I need your help. It's a community project, isn't it? About seeking ways to be true family, about getting to know and care for each other across the age divides and other potential divides as well. And by feasting on his word, this true soul food that elevates him in all things. Amen? Amen. Shall we elevate him above all things? Stephen, do you want to come and lead us? Let's lift our eyes to this great king who's authored this amazing word that we can feast on. Let's do so.